When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello and welcome to the Real Vision Daily Briefing. It's Friday, January 7th, 2022. I'm Maggie Lake, and here with me today is Peter Bookvar, the Chief Investment Officer of Bleakley Advisory. Hi there, Peter. Hey, Maggie. How are you? I'm doing okay, thanks, for the start of the year. Trying to trying to keep track of everything that's going on. It has been uh, a pretty busy one, a pretty volatile one. Um, and then, of course, we had the big payroll number out today, right? The U.S., unemployment rate dropping to 3.9%, although the headline monthly payroll uh, number was a little bit below expectation. Um, I'd love to sort of, you know, get sort of unpack all of that in a moment. But we did see that 10-year yield continuing to stay elevated, rising to 1.77%, and the rotation out of technology and risk continued. The Nasdaq dropped another three quarters of a percent, actually ending off its lows for the day. Bitcoin fell to a three-month low, trading down below 42,000, and Ethereum fell over 6%. Um, so an awful lot going on. Um, but let's focus on jobs as we kick off here. What, what jumped out at you from the jobs report? Well, it was the household survey, which well outperformed the establishment survey. The establishment survey showing the 199 relative to the estimate of 450. But it was the household survey that showed more than 600,000 jobs added. And the size of the labor force increase was much less than that. Therefore, you got that 3.9% unemployment rate. And the all-inclusive U6 rate fell four-tenths month over month to 7.3%. It was 7% in February 2020. Also of note was the wage number. Average hourly earnings rose more than expected. And on a six-month annualized pace, Wages are rising at a 6% rate. Now, outside of a lot of the COVID data noise in April, May 2020, you have to go back decades to see 6% type wage growth. So that is very relevant. That is what has the Fed now worried about this wage price spiral that um, it was characteristic of the inflation in the 1970s. Yeah, you know, the Fed has that dual mandate, right? It has price stability, so watching inflation, extremely important, keeping that in check, but it also has full employment. Um, what what part of this report, given that, do you think is going to be most meaningful for the Fed? Is that is it that average hourly earnings component that you think is going to jump out to them most or they'll put priority on? Absolutely. I mean, if you if you sat down and you look at the stats today, and you see, okay, well, CPI next week is probably going to print north of 7%. Wages, as I mentioned, are running at 6% over the past six months. And the Fed is still expanding its balance sheet for the next three months. It's almost $9 trillion, and they have rates at zero. I mean, you want to talk about offsides, but that's why, of course, the Fed is realizing that they, they, they screwed this up in terms of their timing, and they're trying to regain some of their credibility uh, in terms of trying to catch up, yeah, and so it's been a it's been a really aggressive pivot, hasn't it? I mean, we were joking earlier in the week, or when's the last time that the Fed minutes moved the market so much? But you know, they seem to have 
gone from being patient and waiting to to almost everyone, even the dovish members, you know, getting on on the inflation bandwagon. Um, but the results of that is you've seen a really dramatic move in bond yields, right? I, I, I went back and looked, uh, I think it was December 17th, we were at 1.40 around there. And now we're at 176, 1.77 on the 10-year. Um, that, you know, for bonds, that's that's a quick, big move. Um, do you expect them to keep rising? What do you anticipate here? Well, what we should do is we should compare the 10-year yield also to the Wednesday before Thanksgiving, because it was that Friday that we all learned about Omicron. 10-year yield on that Wednesday, I believe, closed at about 164. So a couple of days ago, we were essentially back to 164 as people realized, okay, Omicron's going to be not a big deal. And while it's highly disruptive for a short period of time, we're going to get through this. And hopefully, uh, this is all the latter stages of COVID in the, in, in the sense of being such a force in our lives. And then, of course, what's carried us through that higher is the, the response function from the Fed that, okay, we got mugged by the reality, we were dead wrong, and now we're going to try to catch up, and hence this move. And Technically speaking, the 178 level is where we topped out in March, which was almost double where we were just a few months before that. So this is a key spot. So I think the market, at least the long end, is going to be going through this tug of war between the Fed tightening in response to the inflation that they're seeing and the wage gains and the tight labor market, which typically flattens the yield curve. But on the other hand, we're seeing a global rise in long-term interest rates, particularly in Europe. I mean, that was very noteworthy today as well, is that the German 10-year yield is getting back to near zero. The Italian 10-year all of a sudden is at 130. The Japanese 10-year all of a sudden is at 14 basis points. Yeah, it's only 14 basis points, but that's still a move, and it's getting to the upper end of their yield curve control range. So this has been a global rate move. And I've said for a while that you can analyze U.S. growth and inflation stats all you want, but a big influence will be what happens in the European bond market. And we saw the European inflation numbers today. And headline inflation in the Eurozone is at 5%. The core rate's at 2.6%. And they still have negative interest rates. And they'll, they're still printing 80 billion euros a month. So the Fed's got catching up to do, but certainly the ECB has a lot of catching up to do. Yeah, ab absolutely. On rates there and thus here. What what do you I have a couple of questions off of that, but you're right. Um, and, and that th a lot of people were looking at that European data uh, very, very closely. Do are we in a situation where we could actually see positive yields for, for Germany? We're a couple of days away from that, at least out 10 years, if, if this trend holds. And uh, I think it will. The ECB is ending their pandemic emergency purchase program in March. And while they're going to mitigate some of the impact by increasing their conventional asset purchase program, their monthly purchases for the second quarter of this year are going to go from 80 billion euros to 40 billion euros. And then the following quarter, it's going to get ratcheted down even more. And then at some point, they're going to debate, OK, how do we start the process of getting out of negative interest rates, which is a whole nother problem and challenge of theirs, uh, which would be dangerous for the world's bond market. But yeah, 
European bond yields are likely going higher, and that means all other bond yields are likely going higher, particularly since the ECB has been the most extreme uh, when it's come when it's come to monetary policy. Now you can say, well, maybe the Bank of Japan's been that way, but the Bank of Japan's balance sheet is growing at a much slower pace than it was. It is the ECB that is the most out of control central bank. So what they do will matter a lot for global bond yields. So, Peter, what what does this mean for the global economy? If you are in this sort of synchronized, although at different paces, perhaps, but environment where we are in a rising rate environment, can the global economy withstand that? Is it strong enough? I mean, we know that we have the inflation part that has to be addressed, but what what does that do to the growth part? Well, that, that's that's uh, uh, that, that's the challenge. I, I wrote a note this week uh, that said that monetary policy. Um, Markets and the economy are conjoined fraternal triplets, and that they are all connected, and you can't separate them out. In other words, when monetary policy changes, that's going to have a direct result on markets and financial conditions. And because the stock market is such a huge driver of economic activity, it's going to then have an impact there as well. And within that markets story, it's not just stocks, it's where credit markets go and where interest rates go and where credit spreads go. So if we get this tightening of financial conditions, where I should say it's not if, it's as we get these tightening, because like I said, you get a tightening monetary policy, it is going to spill over into financial markets. We're already seeing that, uh, particularly with tech stocks and a lot of other um, speculative parts of the market. And then that is going to lead to a widening of credit spreads. And then we're going to have a discussion about what this means for the economy. And yeah, we are headed for a slowdown driven by that or driven by, you know, have a, we can have a debate on where fiscal policy is going to be this year and, and, and so on. But um, yeah, we're headed for that because of, of, of what I just mentioned and these conjoined triplets all working uh, together in the opposite way that it worked over the last couple of years. Hey, everyone, we're going to take a quick break right now to hear a word from our partners. We'll be right back with more of the day's top analysis on the Real Vision Daily Briefing. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L-I-B-S-Y-N-Ads.com. Yeah, and, and I think that there are people who, people who are looking at that and saying, listen, I think we're slowing down already. It's going to continue. And maybe this uh, you know, push to raise rates aggressively and aggressively get ahead of inflation um, is, is uh, not inaccurate, but maybe maybe that should have happened already. Uh, Jared Dillian and Peter Atwater kind of talked around this point in a conversation yesterday where Peter wondered whether the Fed was actually a lagging, it was lagging the economy rather than leading it. Let's have a listen to what they had to say. Yeah, so I, I look at the Fed as a pretty good lagging indicator of sentiment. Um, it's a committee. It's a committee of, of bureaucrats and, and academics. And so as much as the crowd thinks that um, they're following the Fed, when you look at the behavior of the Fed, they are, I think, always a little bit of a step behind the crowd. And so 
I, I agree with you that when Powell said, you know, conceded that it wasn't transitory, th- that to me was a significant indicator that, okay, inflationary pressures should start to ease. And I think we've seen that with supply chains. We've, we're seeing that in fuel. So, so I think your, your, your instinct is right. The, the challenge here for the Fed is that they've, having, having staked out now such a, a afraid of inflation bent, um, my, my concern is that they are going to potentially keep throwing water on a fire that was already beginning to extinguish itself. And, and that to me is sort of the classic situation for, for a lot of policymakers is by the time they act, they're acting after sentiment has turned. That interview is on the Real Vision site, available to Essential Plus and Pro Tiers. Peter, what do you make of what do you make of that? Because he's not just saying they're behind the curve and and they need to be aggressive to catch up. He's saying that they're addressing a problem that's already going away on its own. Well, I, I agree with him that they're definitely late to the party here in terms of tightening. But even if inflation slows, that doesn't mean it's not a problem anymore. Because if it only slows to a rate of three to 4%, which is, I think, going to be the case, well, that's still a problem. And that's still well above the one to 2% that we've become so accustomed to pre-COVID. And an analogy I would give is that if you go, if you need to get to a place, but you miss the train, you don't then just go home. You're going to take the next train. You're going to take the train after because you still got to get to your destination. The Fed needs to get out of QE. They need to get off zero with, with respect to interest rates. So they even again, even if inflation slows to two percent, they need to get up zero. We need to get out of this neg- deeply negative interest rate world, and it's not going to be for a while that we'll see positive real interest rates again. But you, they got to get off this March 2020 emergency monetary policy when we clearly are not in this emergency, and this is not going to end smoothly by any means. But th- that that's the needle that the, the Fed's going to have to thread. And, and that's the problem that they, they, they've caused for, them, for themselves. But the answer is, don't just sit there and do nothing now and watch inflation recede. They have to start normalizing here uh, uh, to the point where something will break, but something's going to break anyway in this process. There's no easy way out here. And it's just pick your poison. Yeah, I, I I was thinking, uh, you know, as as we were looking at the commentary for the Fed, they're now talking about hiking rates and reducing the size of the balance sheet, you know, maybe at the same time pulling on all these different levels. What could possibly go wrong? Chances are something right. Where, where do you think if something's going to break? What do you think it is? Where is the pain going to be most felt? Are we seeing it now play out in in those high beta names in technology in that part of the equity market or could it spread elsewhere? Yeah, I mean, valuations now matter, and and I think that that's that's being uh, messaged clearly, and it has been for months now. When we see what they've done to the, these high multiple stocks, but that's typically the case when monetary policy changes. So I th- I think that this then starts to bleed into a lot of different things again because let's break down monetary policy between QE and interest rate changes. QE, a sim- uh, higher markets were not a symptom of QE. They were the direct impact and purpose of QE. Ben Bernanke wrote an editorial in the Washington Post on November 4th, 2010, 
when he applauded himself for QE1, lifting the markets off its lows, and substantiated QE2 as one of the reasons why it would lift stock prices, which in turn would, would help the wealth effect, which would in turn lift consumer spending, and blah, 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 blah. QE was in specifically intended to lift and ease financial conditions. So when QE goes away, by definition, it will tighten financial conditions. It's just a question of how much of that tightening will the Fed tolerate? Where will the inflation rate be when they can't tolerate it anymore? So in 2018, they were shrinking the balance sheet and raising interest rates. Well, Powell panicked when he got to 2.5% Fed funds rate and the stock market fell 20%. And just a few months later, he was already cutting interest rates. So that was their pain point, a 20% decline. So that experience, too, tells me that they're not going to be doing it both at the same time. And we had an interesting comment today from uh, San Francisco Fed President Mary Daly, who does not vote, who's a big dub, who ironically yesterday said, well, I don't want to shrink the balance sheet until we normalize interest rates. And then she spoke again today and said, well, I don't want to shrink the balance sheet until maybe after we raise twice. <laughs> well, raising twice is not really normalizing interest rates, but maybe it's their new definition of normalization. But they're not going to do them both at the same time because of the 2018 lesson. It's going to be, let's end QE, let's get a couple of rate hikes under our belt, and then we can debate what to do from here, depending on what the yield curve looks like. Because the Fed is deathly afraid of inverting the yield curve. So if the curve starts to flatten at that point in time, then the Fed, and the Fed still feels like they need to tighten, well, then they're going to shrink their balance sheet to try to steepen the curve. If the curve is already steep because there are inflation worries and the bond market is tightening for them, well, then they're going to continue to raise short rates. I think that is what they are going to be analyzing uh, after they get those first couple of rate hikes, like I said, under their belt after they end QE. A fantastic explanation, Peter. And I'm so glad you mentioned that because I did want to ask you about how much of the work is the bond market going to do for them? Uh, you know, we haven't been in a situation like that in a while, but that is extremely relevant. I want to ask you a question um, that we have coming through uh, from uh, the exchange, from Oliver on the exchange. What are your thoughts on the housing market? On the one side, we have inflation that could help real assets appreciate. On the other, we have rising rates, equities pulling back, and economic uncertainty. Could that cause less confidence in the minds of buyers? How do you see it working out in 2022? Well, the, the heat of the housing market that we saw in the second half of 2020 and all throughout 2021, that, 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 that temperature has peaked. And both in terms of housing purchases and transactions and also the rental market. But we're peaking at extraordinary levels. The apartment list national report yesterday came out and December, actually, on a month-over-month -month basis, showed the first rental price decline. It was only two-tenths of the, of the entire year. But year-to-date, rents are still at 18%. The rate of change, according to S&P CoreLogic, in terms of home prices, is beginning to slow. But it's still about 18%. But we've peaked in terms of that rate of change. And we're going to start to soften. Because consumers, they can't afford this. Unfortunately, if you're renting, RealPage said this week 
that occupancy rates are 97.5%. They've never seen it that high. Usually it's 95 or 96. Now, it may not sound like there's much of a difference between 95 and 96 and 97 and a half, but that's hundreds of thousands of people. So uh, getting back to at least the single family market, uh, we also have to watch mortgage rates because higher mortgage rates are going to slow growth. And if you get into a 4% mortgage rate environment, if that will slow housing dramatically more, because then that will also impact people's desire to sell. Because you have a generation of people that don't know what a four handle is in a mortgage rate. They only know two to three. So they may be more reluctant to move into a higher mortgage rather than staying with their loan mortgage. Now, of course, if a family needs to move, they're gonna move. If someone needs more space, they're gonna, they're gonna do it. But it's gonna have a, a dramatic impact, I think, on the pace of transactions uh, if things go much higher from here in terms of mortgage rates. But yeah, we, have, we may still may get price increases this year because inventory is very low, but that rate of change is definitely gonna slow. Yeah. So, as, and as you point out, slowing from a very, very elevated levels, and no matter what part of the housing market you look at. Um, when we're talking about that sort of, you know, the risk off and the pain in the areas that may be felt, and we talked about technology, we have a question from Shane on the exchange. Um, do you have a view on the semiconductor sector? Are we near the peak of chip shortage? This speaks to not only part of the market that we need to watch, but also part of what was fueling some of the supply shortages and price runups that we saw. Well, if we if we listen to some recent comments from some of the big semi names, whether it was Samsung, STM, uh, today, or Micron a few weeks ago when they reported, or some others, a lot of these companies think that by the second half of this year, things will start to normalize. But shifting towards normalization doesn't mean you get to normal so quickly. That's going to take time. I think that you're not going to really get back to a normal supply demand balance until well into mid 2023, late 2023. But again, the rate of change should improve from here, but there's still a period of time where we're gonna have shortages. There's still gonna be less autos on, on that dealer lot uh, because of these shortages. So it's gonna take time. Now, the question with, with a lot of these semi companies, and, and I don't know the answer, and I don't think they even know the answer is, you know, over the past year, how much was double and triple ordering? And what, what's the inventory situation going to look like with all the investments they're making to meet this expected demand in the next couple of years? And are they going to have too much inventory because they over-invested? Or is there still not going to be enough because the demand for semis is so robust? I don't know. And, and, and maybe those that are more confident that I have a better crystal ball than I do but I think that, but I think that's the broad question for inventory going forward from here, generally speaking, because we know we've had so many, so many supply uh, challenges, and we've had a, a percentage of companies that said, you know what, I need to be careful. I need to have more stuff on the shelves. I'm going to order as much as I can, and then others just can't even get what they want because of supply challenges, and they're they need to increase their inventories going forward from here. I'm not sure how this is all going to play out because things have been so mucked up. Uh, but it, it's trying to figure it out is going to be a challenge. But it, it's going to make you know sort of clean data unavailable for a period of time. Yeah, and, and it and we also have this this longer term question: Do people uh, 
reel in their supply chains. We move away from just in time because of what we've seen um, and what price pressure comes from that too. That's going to be really interesting to see. I mean, people talking about it, but you know, in the end, it's it's been a system that's been in place for quite a while. So do, does that really happen? Do we really onshore um, supply chains? I mean, I think that's going to be really interesting. We have a we have a question from Ken on the site. And, sure, feel free. You want to respond to that? So I, I've said on Real Vision before, just in time is dead in terms of what we were used to. And yeah, well, maybe we'll have some onshoring, but I still think that companies are still going to go to the production area that's cheapest and most efficient. What we're going to have instead is we're just going to have more inventory on the shelves. And there'll be some companies that, like even the autos, that'll just be a little bit more vertically integrated and have better control over their, their supply chain and have more uh, you know, pro- unprocessed and processed materials on the shelves rather than you know, hitting their their doorstep right at the last moment. So I think that's what more we'll see, at least for the next couple of years. But that means more inventory in the shelves, less inventory turns, working capital needs that are higher, less cash flow, and, and that has its own disruptive nature, and, and eventually higher prices for the rest of us. I mean, you you take autos and getting back to that sector, for example. These big auto companies have said we're not going to just we're not no longer going to dump inventory on dealer lots. That that old model's gone, which means that they're going to have more pricing power. Yeah, great, great point, Peter. And I think that's one of these longer-term sort of after effects of of this pandemic that we're gonna we're going to be grappling with. We're going to take another quick break to hear a word from our partners. We'll be right back with more of the day's top analysis on the Real Vision Daily Briefing. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. Um, we have a question from Ken from uh, the Real Vision site. Are real-world actions and plans now affecting Bitcoin and thus the crypto market? You know, we have seen uh, cryptocurrencies kind of trade in tandem with risk assets. What's your take there? So I'm a fan of of crypto coins in the sense that, well, crypto generally, because it's so interesting what's happening everywhere. And I say that because I'm a bull on gold and silver for the same reasons that people are bullish on Bitcoin. Because there's this belief that central banks have done wrong and fiat currencies are getting printed like like we're going out of style here. And that there's a very similar line of thinking between Bitcoin bulls and precious metal bulls. I think what we're seeing is, first of all, Bitcoin has, has been around for 13 years. And essentially, all Bitcoin knows is zero rates, negative rates, and massive QE. Mm-hmm. That's sort of the environment that it has grown up in. It doesn't really know other any other environment. It certainly doesn't know what positive real interest rates are. So I think that we are now entering a big test for Bitcoin and some other cryptos. I'm talking about just the price. I'm not talking about the ecosystem and, and everything that develops around it. I'm just talking about the price of Bitcoin and the price of where these coins go. But at least for now, until there comes a day when Bitcoin differentiates itself and becomes a non-differentiated asset and trades more on the dollar 
and trades more on on real rates like it was meant to be as opposed to trading in line with you know the arc innovation fund where they both go up and they both go down at the same time because it's a measure of of valuation sensitivity and risk appetite i do think bitcoin will eventually get to that place where it is not just a risk asset that trades up and down with the market because at the end of the day if it is then then you don't necessarily need to diversify in bitcoin mm-hmm. because a diversified portfolio is not supposed to go up at the same time everything in it and go down at the same time everything in it. it's supposed to have some things that go up some things that go down some things that trade on change so i again i do think bitcoin will separate itself from being that risk asset but at least right now it is certainly proving to be that risk asset just as kathy woods stocks have been yeah, absolutely. Do, do you see a do you see a floor for that change happening? I mean, how how we we've seen the selling in crypto. Do you think it has a lot further to run? I I, I cannot say with any confidence. Yeah, uh, I don't know. I I, uh, I don't know. It just it's having thirteen years of history just doesn't tell me enough to really confidently answer that question. I'm sure over a longer period of time they're all going to do well, but where it goes in the next year, I haven't the faintest idea. I do want to believe that at some point it will trade with gold and silver again because the thesis is supposed to be the same. So today, Bitcoin got hammered and gold was up. Now, granted, gold got hammered yesterday, but I want to see more. I want to see closer correlation between gold and Bitcoin instead of the Nasdaq 100 and the ARK with Bitcoin. That will tell me something has changed when there when 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 that transition happens. Mm. Uh, we, we've talked about some of the, you know, the damage that might be done in equities um, as the Fed embarks on this new uh, tightening uh, phase. Uh, any levels you're watching for the S and P in the near term, or strategies when it comes to equities? Yeah, I, I, I think I think with the end of QE, and, and let's just define this 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 round of QE for a second. It's almost one and a half trillion dollars that's going to zero in three months. Okay, one and a half trillion or 1.44 to be exact was more than double QE1 and QE2 combined and was almost 50% greater than QE3, which was supposedly at the time QE infinity. And like I said earlier, QE was meant to lift asset prices. When QE goes away, that means asset prices respond negatively. So the next couple of months are going to be a, a, a choppy road for risk appetite in the high value valued stocks. Now, today we had plenty of things that were up in energy and other commodities and value. So it's not just sell everything, it's be more valuation sensitive. Understanding that a 40 times sales multiple that goes to 30 is a 33% decline, I'm sorry, is a 25% decline in the stock. It goes to 20, that's a 50% decline. If it goes to 10, which can still be considered expensive, that's a 75% decline in the, in the stock. So all I'm saying is, is just be very valuation sensitive as we work through the end of QE. And then we'll see what happens with these rate hikes and how that then filters into the economy and, and so on. But the next this year is going to be quite different than the last couple of years. The last one I, I want to get your thoughts on uh, is the 10-year. Are we going to continue to see these yields move higher? So I've been talking about inflation for a while. 
So on paper, when you say, if you think inflation's going higher, you think the long end's going higher, which in the first quarter, I was right. But then I started to wonder where rates go if the Fed starts to actually tighten, because history shows that the yield curve flattens when the Fed is tightening, and it steepens when they, when they don't, or when they're easing. So I think that while I believe, I, I do think long rates are going higher. And a lot of that has to do with my worry, my real genuine worry about the European bond market and where rates go there, because the ECB is so screwed right now. And that is, and I don't want to sound hyperbolic here, but the European bond market is the biggest financial bubble in the history of financial markets. I mean, negative interest rates where you've turned an asset into a liability in terms of the holder has, is the epitome of, of, of a bubble. So where they go from here will definitely have a big influence on the U.S. Treasury market. And I have to believe that rates are going higher in Europe as QE winds down there. And if maybe one day they decide to finally raise interest rates. So yeah, I want to think it's going higher, long-end rates here. But again, how, to what extent will depend on how aggressive the Fed gets. Now, it could be a, a situation where rates across the curve go up and, rates, and, and, and curve flattens, but still rates still go higher. Echoing Al, I hope that sort of answered part of your question. Um, so many good questions, Peter, so much good information. We are out of time, but we appreciate it. What a great day to have you on. Thank you for Thanks, all the man. great insight. We kind of span the world and, and we're going to be watching that European space closely and we hope you'll come back to, uh, to us and talk about it. Great. Thanks so much. Thank you. And thanks to all of you for watching. Um, we hope you have a great weekend. As always, the conversation continues on the exchange. Take care and good luck out there. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com.